Good to see you guys. Uh, good to see you again, because I was up here last week preaching a sermon on the will of God. And um, if you weren't here, I'm just going to sum it up for you a little bit. We've been moving through Mark. This is the seventh part of a seven-part series. So this is the end. We've come to the end. We've been talking about the authority of Jesus as displayed throughout Mark. His authority through signs and wonders and, and miracles and healing and, and the teaching that he gave. How he knew the word of God so intimately. And now how, as we've come to the end, we're seeing his authority even through suffering and death on a cross. And so what I preached last week was how Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. I still am struggling with that word one week later. <laughs> the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's intensely praying to God, like, if there's any other way than me going to the cross, like, God, will you send me to it? Can I have that way instead of, like, the suffering that I have to go through? Knowing that he was going, though. Knowing that he was going. Because there was never a doubt from the beginning of creation that he was going to go to the cross. But still, in faith, he goes to the Lord and submits his emotions and the anguish of it all and says, God, now, like, carry me through it. And that his prayer was a a demonstration of faith that, God, you've called me to this, and now you will carry me through it. And so it finishes, we finished kind of on that note that, like, in our lives, we as well have a moment to either submit to the will of God or follow temptation, but that God is the one who carries us through it, and that God is the one who allows us to pursue him even when seasons are tough. And so now we're at this moment where we're picking up today is, He's standing in the Garden of Gethsemane, <laughs> and he is preparing to go into suffering. Literally, as he ends his prayer where we were last week, the people gather. It says a crowd comes with, like, clubs and swords. Can you imagine? Jesus, this peaceful man, this teacher who's done nothing but good to all the people around him, is now kind of, like, swarmed by an angry mob of people holding clubs and swords. For what purpose? Jesus himself says, am I a robber that you've come to, like, assault me? Like, all I've done is teach in your synagogues. But that's, he leaves it at that. And he says, let the scriptures be fulfilled. And he prepares to go through the suffering that he knows is ordained for him. And so I want to just pick up from there in the, in the scriptures. So if you would like to open your Bibles with me, open to Mark chapter 10. Today we're going to do a lot of reading. It will all be on the screen, though, so you will never never have to, like, hold three fingers in your Bible at one time. Because <clears throat> I will provide it for you. So if we are in Mark, chapter 10 is where we're starting off. Verse 33 to 34. This, I just put this here just to, as a start to show you that Jesus knew exactly what was about to happen. And here in verses 33 and 34, this is actually the third time, third time that he's telling his disciples in the book of Mark that he's going to the cross. He says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles or the Romans. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So Jesus, before this mob has come at him to arrest him and to do exactly the very thing that he says they will do, he knows. In excruciating detail, and what we're going to find today as we go to the scriptures, that everything he went through was already prophesied in the Old Testament in excruciating detail. 
Because you had, let me like break it down for you. You had the Old Testament and the New Testament. Testament basically means covenant. So there's one way of doing life with God. And then there was a new way of doing life with God. And the old way of doing life with God was keeping a set of religious rules to fulfill righteousness. And righteousness is just God's way, God's way of loving, God's way of living. In order to fulfill God's way, he laid out specific rules. This is how you love me. This is how you love the people around you. But then Israel was like, really bad at listening. They just like were deaf or I don't know, like they had ear problems. They just couldn't seem to get it. And so they constantly were breaking the law, constantly hurting the people around them, constantly wandering from God. And there was a system of sacrifices in place. Okay, well, you're constantly wandering and you're making mistakes and you're failing here and you're failing there. But if you make sacrifices to account for what you've done, then you can continue in relationship with me. So they would sacrifice like pigeons and goats and all these animals. There's many to explain. They all had different purposes, but there was a sacrificial system put in place. But at some point, as Israel is going through these like seasons of we're with you and we're totally rebelling and we're with you and we're rebelling again. Sorry, God. Like God sent prophets who told them, hey, I'm going to send a Messiah who's going to redeem you once and for all. They're not going to have to have the sacrificial system anymore. And nobody really got the concept of of who the Messiah was, except that he was going to come and make everything right. And so this is prophesied through so many prophets, and their prophecies are what Jesus starts to fulfill in the New Testament. And that's what we're going to be comparing today is that Now in the New Testament, why it's called New Testament is because that old system is gone. The principles of it are not gone. In fact, we will see that they are fulfilled still, that Jesus fulfills them all, but that it's just, it's a new way of doing things. All right. We're good? We got it? With me? Okay. So 1045, a few verses later, if you just skip down in your Bibles, a few verses Jesus, once again, shows that he knows what he's about to suffer. He says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom of many. So here we find he not only knows that he's going to die, but he also knows the purpose that he's dying for, right? Which is a good thing. If you're going to suffer on a cross, you better know why. You know, it's not an easy thing to suffer, And then we're going to keep moving on. In verse 46, it says, And they laid hands on him and seized him. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. So we're going to go through the passage of Mark, chapter 15. And we're going to compare it to Isaiah chapter 53, and then Psalm 22. Now, Isaiah, chapter 53, it's a little bit debatable. Either Isaiah wrote it or one of Isaiah's disciples wrote it. And then Psalm 22 was written by David. Two different men at two different periods of history, completely different periods of history, writing these details. And you'll see they kind of like are like braided together, like writing these details that complete what Jesus goes through in like specific detail. Are you ready? Does everyone remember this from last week? This was from Isaiah, if you didn't know, that I put up there. (laughs) Isaiah, Prince of Prophets. What we read last week was actually verses 7 and 8. 
that where it shows like Jesus was going to be suffered and taken, taken away, right? We're going to start a little bit earlier than that, though. All right, so turn to Mark chapter 15. We're starting from verse 1 exactly. I might skip a couple of verses here and there, but we're going we're gonna to stay on track together. Okay. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. Now, who did Jesus just say was going to, like, he would be given over to when he was prophesying to his disciples? To the chiefs and the elders and the council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. It's a kind of a mysterious answer. Why didn't Jesus just say, yeah, I am. I've been telling you this the whole time. (laughs) Because Jesus throughout Mark at certain points, he begins to reveal to the people like, I am the Messiah. I am the son of God. You'll see me sitting at the right hand of the father. He begins to say this multiple times in his ministry before being handed over to the chief priests. So they know that he said this. That's why the, part of the reason why they're so angry at him, because it's like blasphemy. Except it's not blasphemy because he's telling the truth. He's not lying about who he is. He's telling the truth. But at this point, he's, going, he's not going to assert his authority. Yeah, I'm God. Because he would just be giving in to their their mindset of like, well, if you're the Messiah, then you're going to save yourself right now and you should be saving Israel and establishing your dominion over the Romans. But instead, he's like, I've already met, you know, I've already said I'm the Messiah. You have brought me here and put me on trial because I'm the Messiah. You have said so. And he leaves it at that. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And if you read in the the prior like chapter, they're accusing him of all the stuff. They bring witnesses who are trying to testify against Jesus and no one is saying anything accurate and everything they're saying is mismatched and nothing like nothing coincides. There's no two witnesses who have the same testimony that can say like Jesus has done something wrong. And so then they're the basically what the priests are doing, they're just making up stuff in front of Pilate. They're like, Yeah, he's you know, he's a rebel and he's causing mayhem and he wants to like ruin our system. You know, I I don't know. I don't know what they said, but they're like just trying to come up with things to tell Pilate, like, this guy needs to go. He just needs to go. And Pilate says to them, Have you no answer to make? See how many change, charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Jesus made no further answer. He doesn't try to defend himself. I really love this part. Why doesn't Jesus try to defend himself? I think if he had tried to defend himself, we would have lost a little bit of the love that's communicated through his offering of himself. But by him not defending himself, he's saying like, I completely submit myself to this because of my love for you. I'm not going to try to get out of it. I'm not going to try to defend my name. You'll see who I am soon enough in three days' time. And in this, he demonstrates his love just by submitting and being quiet. But what's interesting is that this is prophesied, his refusal to answer. In Isaiah 53, 7, it says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that bore its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. 
the first part of prophecy that Je- not first there's so many that's been fulfilled but one of the first things that jesus fulfills in the prophecy is not opening his mouth to defend himself which is just crazy but you also notice that here he's called a sheep to slaughter and that's not just like an image like they just randomly chose a sheep it's chosen because sheep were one of the animals that were sacrificed in the old system to atone for the sins of Israel. So now he's being directly equated with that system. In the prophets, like, directly equated. This is the lamb offering who's going to make everything right. It's so detailed. Like, when you go through this and you, like, compare the scriptures, you're like, this is so crazily detailed and, like, so precise. It's amazing. Hundreds of years apart, and yet still, it's so precise. And then it says in verse 16 and 17, And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, so the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, twisting together a crown of thorns. They put it on him. Now, a battalion is 10% of a Roman legion, which is like one of their segments of their army. A legion is 6,000 soldiers which means a battalion is 600 soldiers. You have a peaceful man who all he did was teach in the temple and they bring 600 Roman soldiers to deal with him at his trial. What are they thinking? There must have been some, like, not complete confidence that they were, like, crucifying God's son or not. Like, what if he's, we're crucifying him and we're doing something against God? The Romans were very, like, not superstitious, very um, spiritual people. They believed in a whole system of gods and goddesses. So for them, if someone claims that they're the son of God, they very well might be the son of God. For them, that's not a crazy concept. They have mythologies about gods having sons on earth and, like, half-sons and all this stuff. And so... You probably, they're probably feeling like, if we crucify this guy, and he really is the son of God, we need to be ready for, like, all hell to break loose. So we have 600 Roman soldiers ready. You know, like, it's just, I think it's an interesting tidbit, you know? But Jesus, we know that Jesus is, he could have sent all hell to break loose, but he didn't. Why? Because he's dedicated to love. He's dedicated to fulfilling his mission on the cross. He doesn't want to be delivered from the cross. He doesn't want to be rescued because he wants us to be delivered and rescued. So he keeps his peace and moves on. And here you see that they're calling him, Hail, King of the Jews, in a mocking way. Kings deserve esteem. They're meant to be honored. But here they take every element of what's supposed to be esteem and honor, and they flip it upside down. And just totally, like, berate him with it. And it says that they've, like, put this, like, purple cloak on him, which resembles royalty. And they're, like, kneeling before him. But this also was prophesied through Isaiah. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not even though he was a king to be esteemed. Mm -mm. (coughs) 
So then in Mark 15, 22 to 23, it says, And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. I didn't put it on the PowerPoint, but there's actually uh, a psalm. I think it's Psalm 69 that talks about how Jesus refuses to take this drink. Why? Because this particular concoction of myrrh and wine is supposed to help numb pain. It's supposed to cause a deadening feeling to what you're feeling. A deadening feeling to what you're feeling. (laughs) Deadening sensation to what you're feeling. But he didn't take it. Why? Why didn't he take it? For me, when I read it, it's like, I'm sure he didn't want to lessen the price that he was paying at all. Not one bit. He wanted to pay it fully. He wanted to make sure that everything was done, that nothing could be said, that he cheapened the price that he was trying to give to us, the price that he was willing to pay. So he refuses it. You know, I could have never done that. If someone had offered me something on the cross to minimize my pain, I would have been like, thank you. You have some mercy after all. And then it goes on. In verse 24, and they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And here we have Psalm 22. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet, right? They crucified him. And I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. David, in writing about the Messiah and prophesying through his psalm, writes exactly what happens to Jesus on the cross. There was no Roman system at the time David was writing this. There was no Roman system of crucifixion. David didn't know that they would cast lots for someone's clothing. And yet, through God's inspiration, he begins to write down what will happen to Jesus. So there would be absolutely no doubt that this was God's plan, that Jesus was fulfilling scripture. And we continue. And the inscription of the charge against him read, King of the Jews. And with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And Mark doesn't say anything about the robbers, although they're described in other Gospels. And one of them confesses Jesus as Lord. And Jesus says, you know, this day you'll enter with me into heaven. And he gets saved on the spot. Even though he's lived a life with, completely without God. And then suddenly he's like, you'll be with me in heaven today. What an amazing grace. Jesus hasn't even fully died yet. And he's like, your faith has saved you. Like, awesome. But this also is predicted by Isaiah. 53 verse 9, and they made his grave with the wicked. He's being crucified with two men who actually did wrong. And with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. And so the end of this chapter, and since it's out of order, I didn't put it in here. But there's a man, Joseph of Arimathea, who offers up the tomb he was building for himself for Jesus to be buried in. So he was a, he was a wealthy man. So David both prof- I mean Isaiah both prophesies that he will be crucified with two wicked men and be buried in a rich man's tomb. It's crazy specific. And it keeps going. 
And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Now, Jesus never said that he would destroy the temple. It just says that he said that the temple would eventually be destroyed. But he never said he would do it. So this is a, like, it's not even an accurate charge. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, yet he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Presumably the other robber who wasn't like, I believe that you're the Christ. And here we have Psalm 22, verses 6 to 8. David writing, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Almost word for word, what these robbers are saying to him in Mark. Almost word for word, David writes down. But of course, even at their taunting, even at the soldiers and the scribes and the chiefs and the priests, prove your authority. You've been demonstrating your authority all this time. Well, prove it now. Prove that you can rescue yourself. Send down legions of angels and take yourself off the cross. Jesus is like, absolutely not. Because I have a people that I love, that I'm dying for. And I won't compromise them. I won't compromise an eternity with them. I won't compromise my love, not one bit. Not even by having a little wine and myrrh mixed together. Not even by telling people that I am the Messiah. Not defending myself against any charge. I will not compromise this price. And I will not compromise my love. I want to pay it in full. Because if he pays it in full, then... The result is the fullness of our freedom, the fullness of our joy, the fullness of our peace, the fullness of an eternity spent with God that begins now. Eternity doesn't start later. You still have a soul that continues on. That soul doesn't change when you die to something else. So this this is the beginning of eternity. And Jesus is like, I want to spend eternity with them, starting from the moment they put their faith in me. So I'm committing to this fully in every way to fulfill all scriptures. And it says, and when the sixth hour had come, so this is about 3 p.m. in the afternoon, he was put on the cross at 9 a.m. There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Jesus is bearing the entire weight of the world's sin. And you have to recognize that he's both fully God and fully man. So he's not fully God where in the sense that he's like only God and impermeable to weakness and impermeable to suffering and completely okay on the cross. No, he's fully man. He's suffering. He's experiencing the death, the pain. He's, he's every breath he takes. If you know the way the, like the way Romans crucified people, the nails didn't go through his hands. That's far too comfortable. They went through the wrist right here where all the nerves are. 
all your blood vessels are and where it's exactly between your two little bones that cause your wrist to twist back and forth. I don't know what they're called. <laughs> right between. So your weight is on this one little tiny upper bone. And every time you have to put your weight on it, you feel all the nerves crushing against the nail. His feet are stacked on top of each other with a nail driven through them. I don't know. You can try this at home sometime. I did just to try to like stand on my own with my feet stacked like this up against a wall. It's very difficult. And I'm not supporting my weight on one nail. Again, through an area of teeny tiny bones and lots of nerves. Very painful. And what happened to Jesus before he had gotten to this point, he had been scourged, which means he had been flogged within an inch of his life. We have a phrase in English that I was beat within an inch of my life. Well, that comes from something. It comes from Jesus because he received scourging, which is up to 40 lashes. A sentence of 40 lashes was death. He received a sentence of 39 lashes. So he practically should have died already. That wasn't God's will for him to die that way. So he's alive. And the whip they used, I wish I had a picture of it, but it had like six whips on one. And it's embedded with pieces of rock and glass, metal shards. So that every time it struck his back, it didn't just cause a welt. It didn't just cut a little. It dug into flesh and was designed to tear flesh out of his back. So that he's actually like opening this raw, raw flesh after 39 lashes. People at the point of 39 flashes, you could actually see people's like bowels coming out of them generally. This is what Jesus went through and he hadn't even gotten to the cross yet. So now you have him on a cross. This isn't some nice sanded painted cross that is smooth against your back. This is a raw piece of wood with splinters. They hit every time he breathes. So what happens when you're on a cross is that all of your weight is supported by your feet and your wrists. And in order to breathe, you actually suffocate when you're hanging there the way it's designed. So like death on a cross is actually death by suffocation. It takes a very long time, generally up to three days if you haven't gone through any trauma beforehand. So in order to breathe, you have to push yourself up on the nails. Your back rubs up against the back of the cross. You inhale, gasping for breath at the same time. In intense pain, you don't even really want to breathe. And then you can't hold yourself for that long, so you're back down again like this, hanging, suffocating. And then you have to gasp for breath again. It's a completely brutal death. It's completely unmerciful in every way. It was designed to instill fear into everyone who watched. They did it for slaves who had run away from their masters to be assigned to every slave to never run away again. And they did it. It was for only slaves and for leaders of rebellion. Leaders of rebellion to show them that they should not rise up against the Roman Empire. That's how brutal it is. And Jesus is suffering this as an innocent man. Going through this pain on our behalf. It's like so not what we think it is when we just read through our daily devotion. And oh, and he was crucified and he suffered scourging. And mm, thank you, Jesus. No, like it was so, so intense. 
And now we can understand why he cried tears of blood in the garden. Why he was so anxious about what he was about to go through. And yet he was still willing. He was still willing. And so here he is on the cross, experiencing this intense physical pain, which honestly is enough. But he's also bearing an emotional pain of the Father's rejection of him. Because he had perfect unity with the Father for eternity, unbroken relationship, perfect love, nothing ever going wrong ever in their relationship, fullness of joy and communion with one another. That now that he's bearing the weight of the sin of the world and condemnation, sin cannot be in the presence of God. God is perfect. Sin is exactly the opposite of perfection and God's character. It's sin is essentially failure. It cannot be in the presence of a holy God. Or if it was in, to enter his presence, God would no longer be holy or that thing would be obliterated. So he has to completely remove his presence from his own son for the very first time in all of eternity and reject him in this moment. And not even just reject him and say, I love you, son. I'm sorry I have to reject you. But no, you're bearing the weight of the sin that I hate of all my wrath against people who have broken each other and turned against me. So he's rejecting his son with the fullness of his wrath on sin so that justice could be done. And Jesus bears that emotional weight on the cross as well, which is why he cries out in this loud voice, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's not a, like a rhetorical question. It's not a question that he's actually trying to figure out. He's giving a hint to the people who are watching. Because this is the time of Passover. Jesus is dying as a sacrificial lamb during the time of Passover, which is when Jews gathered to eat a sacrificial lamb to celebrate God's deliverance of them from Egypt. And here is a real sacrificial lamb, the one and for all, dying on a cross to deliver them from all of our Egypts. And so there are thousands of people from all over Israel coming into Jerusalem, passing by Golgotha and going, King of the Jews? And surely they've heard of Jesus at this point. And they're seeing him die on the cross. And they're the people mocking him and ridiculing him. How dare you say you're the king of the Jews and the Messiah. While they're on their way to their Passover meal. And then he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is actually the first line of what David writes in Psalm 22. Some of them who are walking by, and we won't know who, but maybe one day we'll find out, heard that. And they went to Psalm 22 in their mind that they've sung over and recited so many times and read through the psalm and read the suffering Jesus went through and recognized he is the Messiah. They looked at him on the cross and looked at the prophecies being fulfilled in front of their eyes. Jesus specifically said this, one, to express the emotional state that he was in, but two, to say, I'm fulfilling exactly what I have come to fulfill. Take note. It is me. I am who I said I am. I'm here for you. You've waited for me. I won't let you down. And it says, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. 
is written in all the Gospels in a slightly different way. Each author emphasizes something different. So in John, it says, oh, in John it says, When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He was offered wine a second time. Gave up his spirit. This has an essence of surrender to it. Not he died. His life was taken from him. The time had come. At the time had come, but it was a willing surrender that he gave. And in Matthew, he echoes the sentiment. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And in Luke, then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. This one in particular, if any Jew had been listening, would again have been reminded, because this was a nightly prayer of a devoted Jew. Father, into, my can- into your hands I commit my spirit, before they went to bed each night. Here is Jesus, old, like expressing the ultimate trust in the Father, committing his own spirit on a cross. And so we have this willing surrender until the end by Jesus. And it says, when he did that, when he gave this loud cry, there was an earthquake. The gospels, other gospels record the earthquake, but Mark simply records this. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. The curtain in the temple separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. The Holy of Holies was the place where the priest who was meant to serve the people and um, intercede for forgiveness of all their sins would go into the Holy of Holies. And only the priest was allowed to go in after ceremonial rituals of like cleansing. And here, the veil, that curtain is being torn to say that Jesus is now the priest. There's no longer a need for that intercession by man, but you directly have access to his presence. You directly have access to his intimacy. You directly have access to his goodness. The veil has been torn. And this is a miraculous thing. It's quite supernatural. The, the, this curtain was at least 60 feet tall. I don't know what that is in meters. I should have thought about that. I don't know, 20 meters? At least 20 meters high. Some people say that it was taller than that. And at least 30 feet wide. And then as thick as a man's hand. So about an inch thick, an inch or two thick. This is not a piece of fabric that you can go up to and just... It's not meant to be torn. It is meant to be a barrier. That no one passes through except for one man and one man only, the priest. That Jesus is now the priest and he's removed the barrier. It's so beautiful. God has now removed the barrier for us that we don't have to go through a system anymore to get to him. You don't have to make yourself right in a certain or, or special way in order to pray to God. You don't have to have everything in order in order to be on his good side. 
for him not to strike you down dead. You simply have to come as you are with all your sin, with all your mess ups, with everything out of order. You could be feeling like nothing is right in your life, but Jesus made a way for you. You don't have to. It's kind of ironic. You don't have to be holy now to enter the Holy of Holies because Jesus is your holiness for you. That's what his death won for you is that now all of his holiness and his righteousness is attributed to you on your behalf. So that when you come before God, putting your faith in Jesus, saying, I believe that Jesus died on my behalf, that God sees Jesus' holiness through your faith. And that's all you need. But what about Barabbas? We actually read about Barabbas in the scripture reading today. It's an interesting detail to record because Pilate asked the Jews, as is tradition, who do I release to you? And they say, crucify Jesus. And we focus on that. We focus on the fact that they didn't let Jesus go and they insisted that he be crucified. And people are like, let's blame the Jews. The Jews killed Jesus. And well, no, the Gentiles put him on a cross. So we all did. But... Barabbas' name actually means son of a father or son like his father. And symbolically, it's very rich with meaning. Because Barabbas was a prisoner due to the murder that he committed. And if he's a son like his father, he's a son like every person of us on, on this earth. Sinners. A son of Adam. Ones who cannot redeem ourselves or set ourselves free. But because of Jesus, Barabbas got set free. I am Barabbas. And so are you. Each of us are Barabbas. Because Jesus stood in our place, we get set free from whatever judgment was destined for us. Barabbas gets to go. He gets to enjoy life. While Jesus takes all of his condemnation on the cross. And what's interesting, if Barabbas ever put his faith in Jesus at that point, out of gratitude for being saved from his own condemnation, not only would he be son of a father, son of, all, of Adam, all sinners, but now son of the father, a, a co-heir and a brother of Jesus Christ, with access to everything that the father can give. All resources of joy, love, peace, life everlasting forever and ever. Goodness. And then nothing will separate him from that because now he's a son. It's a crazy, crazy story. And a crazy, crazy picture of grace. That grace is not something we earn. Life with Jesus isn't something we earn. It's not something that we we try to work towards. Christianity is not morality. It's not about weighing your good deeds and your bad deeds. It's simply about saying, Jesus has won something for me that I don't deserve. And I'm thankful for it. And I want access to him and his love forever. So I'm going to put my faith in him. It's as simple as that. 
And I was going to kind of end this sermon by saying that there are two kinds of people. But there really aren't two kinds of people. There are so many ways to respond to this message. You can completely reject this message. Or you can accept this message. Or you may accept this message and walk with Jesus for a while and then have a really difficult season and find yourself completely fallen out of love with him. And then from there, two things can happen. You may fall back in love with him again. Or you may kind of go off on your own thing again. But one thing is certain. It's much better to fall back in love with Jesus again. Because he's always waiting for you. He's never going to reject you, no matter how many times you come. No matter how many times you mess up, he's going to be waiting for you. He's committed. He's fully committed. We've seen that in every detail. He's fully committed to you. He'll never reject you no matter how many times you come. But the important thing is that you come. Always, every time you mess up, to come back and say, God, I've missed you. I wandered from you. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. And that there's assurance Just go read Hebrews chapter 10 when you go home. I don't have time today to walk us through, even though I wanted to. That you have assurance that if you come back to God every time, that he'll receive you. And not only receive you, but that you'll walk in the fullness of life. And not only walk in the fullness of life now, but walk in the fullness of life forevermore. That there's a reward of eternal life with God and all the good things that he has to offer forever. It's not a bad deal. But at the same time, like being a Christian comes with its difficulties. It comes with persecution. It comes with hardship. It comes with trials. It's not a walk in the park. Things aren't good all the time, but God is always with you through it. You have an everlasting hope. It's always worth it to go to Jesus. And frankly, it's quite a relief to go to Jesus and to never have to rely on yourself. So this is where I leave us today. This is the way Mark ends his gospel. Jesus dies, and three days later, he's resurrected. Because he's fully God and fully man. He cannot succumb to death. He overcomes it in victory. And because he's fully God and fully man, he pays for every sin that ever has been committed and ever will be committed. All at once. And he opens the door for us to enter into the Holy of Holies and have a relationship with him. And it really is about relationship. It's not about keeping rights and wrongs, but just renewing our heart all the time in love. Constantly renewing our heart in love. Remembering the same love that Jesus died with on the cross for us.